This is Stacey Hillier and you are listening to the Prophetic Collective Podcast. Hey listeners, you are about to listen to our new Worship Reformation series with special guest Joel Field. We hope you enjoy. Well, Joel, welcome back to The Conversation. Here we are. Today we are sponsored by Maker Coffee. The best. St. James Juices. Almost the best. Absolutely. And today we're continuing to talk about this big topic of a worship reformation. I think we'd planned 13 episodes and we're now going to be doing about 28. Yes, 13 will be the introduction, no doubt. Well, we should be well-reformed by the time we get into episode four, I would say. But today, you and I are going to talk about a topic we're very passionate about. In episode one, we covered off, or maybe two, on the seven revivals and the foundational restoration of Davidic worship in each of those revivals. So we're going to talk a bit more about that topic today. But before I ask you that quest, this first question that I have for you, mm-hmm. I want to read a quote from a book that we'll link in the show notes in all the places that... I'm reading at the moment called David's Tabernacle by Matthew Lilly. And he says this, when the Lord began drawing me into the study of David's Tabernacle over 15 years ago, I was blown away by the limited number of resources available on the subject. I felt a supernatural urge to understand what David had done and the implications of it in my life. But I felt like maybe I was a little crazy. We're there right now. Why were so few people talking about this? Why was there so little commentary? Why so few books? Why was David's tabernacle being overlooked? Every time I explored the topic, I felt like I was touching something so near to God's heart. And over the years, it has become near to my heart too. Methodist minister George Smith wrote about the tabernacle of David in the mid-19th century. He said, It is scarcely possible to find a more neglected, or a more important portion of scriptural inquiry than this. One of our heroes, Kevin Connor, wrote one of the most influential books on the topic in the 70s. Yet when he first heard the phrase Tabernacle of David, he admits, I did not even know that David had a tabernacle. So I think what I love about that is we are touching on something that we can really sense is so close to the Lord's heart and yet is very unfamiliar are within the church today and yet it's on the Lord's heart and he's trying to bring it back to the forefront what's always been in scripture. So I'd love it if you could help our listeners and those watching understand what is Davidic worship and where is it in scripture and what does it look like? Yeah, it's such a huge topic and so I suppose, yeah, we're not going to cover it all off in one episode. Um, But this has been um, a really huge part of my learning this year because similarly as you've quoted there, I knew David had a tabernacle Mm -hmm. but what it entailed I had no idea about. Mm -hmm. And I think for the most part in Christendom, especially in our circles of Christianity, we look at the Old Testament um, and whilst even if we can look at it and perhaps we see the work or the pointing and the signals towards Jesus mm-hmm. um, in the Old Testament. We kind of leave it there. Mm-hmm. And even if we look at the Old Testament heroes and the stories there, we kind of treat them in isolation. Yes. And what we fail to see and what we miss out of 
when we read the Old Testament most times is the richness that is in there and also how it speaks to the church today. Yes. Um, and so you can actually see God's plan for the church in the Old Testament yes. and a lot of it is found in David's tabernacle, yes. which is why it's so important for us to look at today because this is not just looking at a story in isolation about a man who was called uh, a man after God's own heart mm-hmm. and, oh, that's a good model for worship. This is actually God's design for what the church is supposed to look like today and how we as a body of believers are called to worship him. And so I think before we look at the Davidic order of worship, we need to understand the heart behind it or Mm. this heart Mm -hmm. that was a man after God's own heart. Why was he a man after God's own heart? Because he desired the same things that God desired. And so when God looks for people to give assignments to, He's not looking for people's resumes and their, you know, accolades and awards and their personalities and so on and so forth. What God is looking for first and foremost is a worshipper. And the reason that he looks for worshippers is because when God does something significant through someone who is a worshipper, all glory goes back to him. And so when uh, God finds someone to release his power through someone who is standing in awe of him or someone who is overwhelmed in worship when they're fixed on this one thing to dwell in his house, to gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his temple, Mm -hmm. all the attention goes back to him. And this is what we see in the life of David. We know that David superseded King Saul, who was Israel's first king, Mm And God rejected Saul because of his pride and his abuse of the priestly ministry. It was at the moment where mm. Saul took that that sacred priestly ministry and used it for his own personal gain. Right. That was the moment when he was yeah. rejected from being king and and that's when God declared, I've sought out and found someone who's a man after my own heart. And so then 20 years later when Saul had died, David had been uh, already ruling in Hebron for seven years mm-hmm. at that point. And then at that moment, then all the people gathered to anoint David as king over all of Israel. And it was in this moment where David was about to become king, to rule over his kingdom, to exercise his authority, to fulfill that prophetic destiny that mm-hmm. he'd received so many years before. Um, the first thing that he did was he worshipped and he called others to worship mm-hmm. as well. And so that's why we read in, in 1 Chronicles 13 the story where he gathered the leaders of the community and all the commanders and he said to the assembly in 1 Chronicles 13 too, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel as well as to the priests and the Levites in the cities that have pasture lands that they may be gathered to us. And so... What had happened in Saul's day was that the Levites, the priests, all of those who had been assigned to the work in the tabernacle had literally been put out to pasture Mm -hmm. because Saul had no use for their Mm -hmm. worship Mm -hmm. and for their ministry. And so the Levites were literally out in the fields, just like digging up fields, trying to make a living for themselves. And David now, day one on the job, Mm -hmm. uh, he sends for them and brings them Mm -hmm. back to Jerusalem. And so then David made the most important leadership decision of his entire life where he says, then let us bring again the ark of our God to us for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Mm. Um, I, I, can you imagine like that being your legacy if, if that was uh, David's overview of the nation under Saul's leadership was that we did not seek the presence of God. 
yeah. under Saul. And so David swore that before he ever went into his house, before that he ever set up his throne in Jerusalem, the first thing that he was going to go and do was get mm-hmm. the Ark of the Covenant. And he mm-hmm. vowed that the presence of God would be at the center mm-hmm. of all that they would do from that day forward. And so David understood that this was the thing that made them distinct yeah. and unique among all the nations. And so that's why in Psalm 132, Solomon wrote about his uh, father and he said, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships that he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. That's what Solomon was referring to, was this very start of David's reign where David made a vow that he would make the presence of God the center of his kingdom. And so he told them to go get the ark. It was just sitting out in a field. The very ark that was in the tabernacle of Moses, mm. the ark of the covenant where the throne of on which the glory of God manifested on earth, um, you know, above the golden cherubim, uh, inside that ark was Aaron's rod that budded and the Ten Commandments and the manna inside as well. And this was supposed to be the very convergence point between heaven and earth. Yeah. Um, and God's throne on earth was meant to abide in this tabernacle. But Paul, mm. but Saul said, mm-hmm. in his pride, I've got no use for that throne. I'm only concerned about my throne. Yeah. And so he left it out in the field until David then, a man after God's own heart, said, I don't want just my throne in Jerusalem. I want his throne yeah. in our midst. Yeah. And so David then sets up this tent for the ark in Jerusalem and he puts this ark in in the tent and he does this incredible thing it's it's an open tent mm. it's it's not hidden in a in a most holy place anymore yeah. where only one person once a year can go in and see the manifest presence of god it's in this open tent where the whole nation yep. can see without face veils. to face without veils mm. the very presence of god and then he sets in in place 4000 uh, musicians and singers surrounding the ark 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This was their full-time occupation. Um, And they didn't have any other service day or night Mm -hmm. except to sing to the glory of God um, that was resting above the mercy seat. And um, like we said, in Moses' tabernacle, there was this veil that would Mm -hmm. uh, surround the ark and only the high priest once a year could enter in. But uh, And then even after David dies, when Solomon builds his temple, the ark goes back into the inner Mm -hmm. chambers. But for 33 years, David put the ark in a tent. He surrounded it with something called the sacrifice of praise Mm -hmm. and all who entered could gaze with unveiled face at the glory of God. And so David somehow knew by divine revelation that praise, worship and adoration was the incense that God desired and that would be the atmosphere of the glory of God and that God would dwell in. So there was no stage in the tabernacle. It was God in the middle and everyone else surrounding Mm -hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And no one was struck dead when they yeah. they stood before the ark. Yeah. And so this revelation, I mean, we've talked about this as well. Yeah. Where did David get this yeah. revelation from, right? Yeah. Because we don't actually see it in Scripture, but yet it's it's so profound what yes. he um, somehow caught a glimpse of, yeah. right? Well, and Acts um, calls David a prophet. Mm. And most commentators and theologians, and this just makes me froth studying this, 
believe that when David in 1 Samuel 19 was running away from Saul, so Saul had been overcome by this tormenting spirit, which was sent from God and David was ministering to him um, on his musical instrument and Saul takes a spear and tries to pin David to a wall and Michal, Saul's daughter, actually helps David escape. And David runs to the prophet who had anointed him as a boy, the, Mm -hmm. the one son that Jesse didn't even bring out. He runs to Samuel and he spends time living with Samuel, hiding from Saul. And most theologians would say that when these two prophets were together, so a senior prophet and a developing prophet were together, that they were asking God questions like, what is on your heart? What do you see for our people? What do you see for the nation? And so if you can let your redeemed imagination go there, that you've got this company of prophets that surrounded Samuel and then you've got David, this worshipping prophet, soon to be the king, being chased away by a king who feared man more than he feared God. And they're sitting talking about what's on God's heart. And most believe that they went into a visionary encounter where the prophets saw Revelation 4 and 5. And if you even pause now and read Revelation 4 and 5, it actually describes what worship is going to be like for us eternally in heaven where there is worship surrounding the throne and there is this harp and bowl and prayer and intercession working together, which we'll talk more about. And that because David caught a glimpse of that, he went, I'm going to make that happen under my leadership. Mm. I'm going to bring that to earth. So David was pulling a post-Jesus reality into a pre-Jesus world because he had a revelation of a coming Messiah, which he writes about in a psalm. He had a revelation of a coming Messiah, of how he would come. And David didn't expect him to come like a Roman emperor. One, he didn't live in that culture and time, but also because he was a man who understood a humble king. So he expected a humble king. A baby wouldn't have shocked him. Like it shocked the Romans. David would have been like, yeah, that's my God. (laughs) Because he lived that way. He was a man after God's own heart. So he pulled a a post-Jesus reality of worship that we now live in into a pre-Jesus world through prophetic revelation that he received with another prophet, Samuel. Yeah, so true. Uh, Yeah, I remember just when I was reading about how David set up this tabernacle and that even that he chose 24 families. Yeah led by the elders of yeah. those families to minister mm-hmm. to the Lord, yes. right? So that's why we read in Revelation yeah. about the 24 elders. Yeah. And I'm like, how on earth did yeah. he, he like capture this? Where did he get that yeah. from? And um, and so then, yeah, he had this backup band of 4,000 musicians <laughs> all to minister to the Lord. He had 4,000 gatekeepers, 6,000 judges and mm-hmm. officers uh, were appointed to handle the operations or the logistics and the finances of the tabernacle. And so David spent roughly, in today's economy, about a billion dollars yep. setting up this this tabernacle just to simply minister to the Lord. And then he spent a $100 billion to keep it going as mm-hmm. well. And in David... David's mind, it was more than worth yeah. worth it. And so for 33 years then, again, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. For 33 years, there's this unveiled face beholding the glory yeah. of God. And then years and decades and centuries later, Jesus, yeah. the, the tabernacle of God, Emmanuel, glory of God dwelling with man again for 33 years, mm-hmm. walked the earth and people with unveiled face behold the glory of God once again. And mm-hmm. so... 
saw, like you say, David saw something that was beyond his day. He had this revelation of heaven that he wanted to replicate on earth. And he saw that worship culture in heaven surrounded the throne. And David said to himself, I want the throne in Jerusalem to look like that throne on earth as it is in heaven. And so he set this Davidic order of worship in place for 33 years. Uh, He understood that his authority of his kingdom didn't come from his political savvy. He was a shepherd boy after all. He wasn't like born into royalty. Mm -hmm. His confidence in battle even didn't come from his military prowess. Mm -hmm. Power and authority in David's mind came from ministry in the tabernacle. Um, It came from that open heaven, came from that convergence point between heaven and earth and the manifest glory of God. And so David said to himself, I'm going to spend a billion dollars setting up this convergence point so Mm -hmm. that it stays open as well. And so that is what became the Davidic order of worship. And David wasn't just setting up an order of worship and a culture of worship for his kingdom. Like I said earlier, David was establishing a worship order and culture that God wanted to replicate for all the ages. Yeah. Uh, and then David, as we've spoken about, um, really set up the blueprint for revival in yes. Israel uh, and set up the blueprint for the priesthood of all believers the harvest of the nations, the centre of Jesus' government in the age to come as well. And so David's order of worship was really about a convergence point between heaven and earth and a resting place for God's glory. And, um, yeah, I've been asked and uh, recently, okay, what what is the Davidic order of worship? Yeah. What are we talking yep. about yep. here? And it, if I... I guess, sum up the Davidic order of worship. I look at it in, in a threefold way and it's not all-encompassing whatsoever. Yeah. These are just three things that that have helped me uh, in my understanding of the Davidic order of worship and how we establish that uh, today. Um, so I would say that number one, it's thanksgiving and praise. Yep. We read about that in Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And yep. we can unpack these uh, in greater detail uh, as well about what this means practically for mm-hmm. us. But firstly, it's thanksgiving and praise. Secondly, it's a spirit and truth worship. Mm-hmm. We read about David um, writing in Psalm 51 in his repentance mm-hmm. psalm. In verse 6, he says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then he also goes on to say, Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit mm-hmm. within me. He also asks for that, Don't take your Holy Spirit from yes. me. So spirit and in truth we read about in John 4. Obviously Jesus mm-hmm. with the woman at the well um, saying that this is the type of worship that mm-hmm. the Father is seeking for, those mm-hmm. that worship in spirit and in truth. And so that's the second thing, spirit and truth. And then thirdly, it's harp and bowl, which you've alluded alluded to there, uh, where there's worship and intercession we read about in Revelation 5, where the four living creatures and 24 elders Mm. again fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp Mm. and a golden bowl of incense, Mm. which are the prayers of the saints. So that's how I would encapsulate Davidic order of worship, Mm -hmm. that you've got thanksgiving and praise, you've got spirit and truth, and you've got harp and bowl. In a world that's constantly pulling us in different directions, where distractions abound, there's a powerful invitation waiting for you. Introducing Stacey Hillier's brand new e-course, Living Face to Face, an Intimate Life with Jesus. 
Go on a transformative journey to deepen your connection with Jesus and become more like Him. Dive into timeless teachings, guided practices, and soul-stirring reflections as you follow along with the video content and your free workbook. Access this life-changing course by visiting www.stacyhillier.com. Your invitation to experience the eternal joy of living face-to-face with Jesus starts now. We're going to do a whole episode on harp and bowl, Mm. but I think one of the biblical things we do see David model is that this is perpetual 24-7. And that could be quite discouraging for people. I can't make this happen 24-7. Well, actually you can personally. Mm. And in fact, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. He's actually, you know, riffing off some of this stuff from David. It's amazing actually. When we think of the New Testament, and you said this before, uh, we as Pentecostal Christians love to read the New Testament and almost like, oh, the Old Testament, that's cute. But actually we've got to remember all the writers of the New Testament knew off by heart at least the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they didn't have a New Testament at the time. That's right. <laughs> they only had the Old Testament. Yes. So they weren't writing something that they saw as separate than the law. Right. They were writing to make sense of the law mm-hmm. and to prove that Jesus was the fulfilment yes. of the law and prophecy. So for us to read the New Testament and discount the old is to read the New Testament out of its context because it was written within the fabric of the knowledge of the Old Testament or what they had of it. So we see so many links when we look for them and this is the beauty of reading the Bible for 20, 30 years. You begin to see layer after layer. It's just absolutely stunning. Um, So we will talk about fully harp and bowl in another episode. But I just want to say if you're like, oh, 24-7, that's so full on. We started with three hours, haven't Mm -hmm. we? Do you want to talk a little bit about what we're doing in Upper Room? Yeah, so our Upper Room prayer right now, uh, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. once a week, Mm -hmm. um, and it's purely about ministry to the Lord. So, Mm -hmm. again, as we've been studying uh, these uh, topics um, and being like, okay, well, what does this mean for us today? We have, I guess, felt the ache that David felt, uh, which we'll go on to talk about, but we've we've been like, okay, what can we do? It has to lead to something, right? It can't just be head knowledge. Yeah. But as you start to feel the ache, there's this desire now that is birthed within you that, well, we have to create space yeah. for this to actually yeah. be. We can't just mm-hmm. teach about this. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, there's the, I guess, the individual, yes, our lives yep. can be 24-7 worship, yeah. um, but also there's a corporate call right. uh, for us to engage in as mm-hmm. well. So we want to create space in a corporate gathering for people to come and just simply minister to the Lord. So like you say, we're starting with three hours. Mm-hmm. We're hoping to expand that to six hours early uh, in 2024 and then, uh, you know, to 12 hours to, you know, 24 hours, who knows yeah. um, what will be from here, but that, yeah. that's where we're going. Well, our building soon at our city location being refurbished, we're building a prayer chapel, yes. a glass prayer chapel on the top of our 10 floors that will be 24-7 yeah. prayer and worship, whatever that looks like. It's absolutely beautiful. But one of the things we've had to do, which will lead well to this next question, is because we as a house have focused so long on ministry to people and even ministry to one another as a staff, we have to start those meetings by explaining to people every week we, you won't be receiving a prophetic word. You won't be receiving prayer. We are all here to minister to the Lord because we're actually trying to steer and change culture. And 
people can feel quite uncomfortable with that at first because they're used to coming to receive, but they're also used to coming to minister to others. And even amongst our staff, we've had to tap people on the shoulder and be like, hey, we're just here to minister to Jesus, which is a beautiful transition. So it leads to this question, what has this realignment with Davidic worship looked like in our current move of God? And maybe share personally about some of the wrestles and the practicalities of this. Yeah. um, Well, we've talked about, um, you know, those seven revivals in the Old Testament um, where there was... Uh, starting with David and then those that came after, there there was leaders and kings in the Old Testament that again caught a glimpse of this Davidic order of worship. What I found interesting in my study of the kings that followed David and Solomon is that whilst, yes, we read about a bunch of terrible kings, uh, there's a number of kings who did okay. Um, And you'll see that like it says things like they did right in the sight of the Lord, but. And there's like a little caveat there. They didn't, Which is normally about their heart. Yes, exactly. So it might be that they they put certain things in place, they had certain reforms, but they left the high places mm-hmm. there. Um, and so uh, there was almost an element in there what sort of, I guess, typified their reign was that they wanted to establish their throne, yeah. kind of like Saul. They, they wanted to get the benefits of mm-hmm. following God and the blessings that are associated with mm. that, but they weren't interested in putting the tabernacle or the throne back in the tabernacle, yeah. the first and foremost priority mm. of God's throne in their midst. And so they did okay and they brought some spiritual reforms and yet they didn't see the fulfilment of of what David saw in his mm. day. And so um, I think that in some ways we've, we've perhaps mirrored that in church life yeah. as well, where over the last, I guess 10 or so years as I've looked at it, and these are just simply my observations, they're not hard and fast rules. But my observation would be that we've paid a lot of attention to spiritual authority um, and our ruling and reigning as kings. Yes. uh, And we've placed a lot of emphasis on that. And it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. wrong by any means, means, but I think if we take that in isolation, we miss out on the richness of establishing God's throne and um, ministering to him. And I think what's... What's even happened is that, you know, in Revelation 1 where the angel speaks to John and he says he's made us a kingdom of priests, Mm -hmm. which is echoing what was said in Exodus 19 when God called the Israelites to himself and says, I've made you a kingdom of priests. Some translations actually uh, word that as I've made you kings and priests. And it's a bit of a mistranslation. And what has happened in that when we read that mistranslation is that we separate kings and priests. Mm -hmm. And what I think we've done for the last little while is focused on the king's part. Who wouldn't prefer to be a king over a priest. (laughs) Um, And so we've taken that and we've either taken that for ourselves, like uh, just focused on our kingly authority and ruling and reigning, or we've said, okay, well, there's some kings, some some are kings and some are priests yep. and we've separated the yep. two and we've like, oh, the kings are those out in, you know, mm-hmm. the marketplace yep. and in authority and, and and all those kind of things. And the priests are those who are actually called to full-time mm-hmm. ministry. Mm-hmm. And again, we've, we've separated it and we've missed out on the actual calling of each and every one of us mm. to collectively be a kingdom of priests. Yes. And so, yes, we we have our royal priesthood. Mm-hmm. We are kings and we are, we are priests, but we're, we're actually called to be together collectively a kingdom yeah. of priests. So at the moment, it might seem like we're overemphasizing the priesthood 
like we talked about in the last episode. But I believe it's because we're at a similar moment in time like the, when David yeah, came to uh, rule mm-hmm. after Saul's reign mm-hmm. where there's been an overemphasis yeah. emphasis on establishing the kingdom and yes. our kingdom authority. Yeah. And perhaps it might seem at the moment, especially those of us mm-hmm. in the prophetic persuasion, would be like we need to talk about the priesthood, the priesthood, the priesthood, and we're bringing it, we're almost readdressing that balance. Yep. For the next little while. Yeah, and we're correcting that Mm. to bring some of that back into alignment as well. Um, Because although David recognized that he was king, uh, he recognized that his primary role was to be a priest and to establish a throne in the tabernacle and that convergence points between heaven and earth. And so that's why David wrote that God inhabits the praises of his people. That word inhabit also means to sit upon. And uh, he sits upon a throne. And so as we engage in praise and worship, what we're actually doing is establishing a throne for the king of kings to sit upon on earth and and to make this place a an actual convergence point to the throne room of heaven once again. And so I think when it comes to like the wrestles and the practicalities that we've faced in all of this... um, you know, pioneering and any kind of reformation isn't for the faint of heart because no. it's very easy to be misunderstood. David himself, right, faced that even in his own house when his wife, Mikkel, totally misunderstood and despised his worship yeah. because he emphasized his priesthood. Yeah. And any worship that's uh, observed from a distance will be despised. Yeah. And that's what happened with Mikkel and David as well. And so people are generally comfortable with the status quo. Yes. And so when you start making changes, even to the types of songs that you're singing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, songs that focus on beholding him, mm-hmm. not on songs that talk about the way that he makes me feel mm-hmm. or what he does for my life mm-hmm. or even bringing our needs and our desires and our dreams mm-hmm. and how he can help me fulfill them, that can irk a lot of people uh, because those are the songs that are popular right now, yeah. right? And so even then the length of time that we uh, spend in worship can be an issue for or, or for some people and make them feel uncomfortable. You know, I see memes all the time from well-known Christian voices in our world today poking fun at the length of songs or the length of worship or how many times we sing a chorus and so on. And so it's easy to feel like you're out on your own at times when you're pioneering or when you're leading uh, worship reformation, when you feel that tug of the Lord on your life and drawing you closer to his heart. That's how I've observed it. What about yourself? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've got the realities in our house, if we're talking very practically, our church is based in a region where we have two-hour parking. Mm. Well, our services go over two hours. Right. So, like, we have the practicalities to think through of people moving cars and all the rest of it. I'm so grateful for our church because they're very hungry for the Lord and most of them just cop the fine. (laughs) Um, And I'm grateful for things like flexible kids teams and all the things. I think one of the biggest tensions for us has been that we have caught a glimpse and a revelation of what David and Samuel caught a revelation of. And I think sometimes to carry God's heart can feel like frustration Mm. because when you catch a glimpse of something before sometimes even your leaders have caught a glimpse of it or before the rest of your team has caught a glimpse of it or your husband or your wife or whatever that looks like, which David faced. Yes. 
that the cheapest way to express that deep ache is frustration and projection. And I found myself in that place, Mm. very frustrated with people I love and value. Um, And yet part of uh, me desiring people to live in the profit's reward is I have a responsibility to help people see, hear and taste what I see, hear and taste from heaven. That's actually the role of a fivefold prophet is not to live up there and be like, well, you can all get up here. It's to actually go up the mountain and come back like Moses did with a blueprint and to take the time to lovingly express to people around you, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm hearing, and to do that with real humility, not with so we have to do this right now mm-hmm. because prophets often see a piece of, apost- of an apostle seeing a greater picture. And in our context, we're working with fivefold. Yes. So I actually projected a lot of frustration rather than letting the ache make me soft and tender. And I think that's one of the beautiful marks that gave David a heart after God's own heart is that he was a warrior, but he was also tender. And so one of the choices I'm trying to make and trying to learn out of this season of probably for six months, you and I were really talking about this before we had full permission to express this within our house even and within our team and within our services, Um, I'm trying to learn that when I feel that ache to make a conscious choice to ascribe the right virtues to that. Mm -hmm. Because if I step out of love and into frustration, even if I'm proclaiming true revelation, I'm going to be a clanging cymbal and a resounding gong. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually want to be a dinner bell that calls people to the banquet table, which means I need to stay in love. So I'm trying when I feel that ache that presents cheaply as frustration to instead turn that into worship and to stay tender before the Lord and weep over what I don't see yet rather than wanting to punch on. (laughs) (laughs) But that's been very real for us, hasn't it? And you and I have had some very frustrated conversations that actually aren't honouring and aren't right. Mm -hmm. Came out of this thing that God was showing us and that we were seeing in Scripture but it's actually immature prophetic. Right. And we're growing, we're human, and we're all learning. So thank goodness for grace, hey, and that he wants this more than us. Yes. He actually wants the house and his bride to get this more than we do. What husband doesn't want a wife that aches for him? Exactly right. Yeah. What husband wants a wife that aches more for shopping and consumerism and what she dresses herself in? So true more than aches for his heart. Mm-hmm. So he wants us to get this more than we do and yet he never gets frustrated with us. And that's another thing I think, Joel, in the wrestle. I have heard the Lord say this phrase to me more in the last 12 months than I've heard in my whole life, look at me. Right. And if I'm honest, my human nature, if I don't feel like I'm nailing it or I'm not getting it right, is my own husband has to say to me, Stacy, look at me. And I'll be like, I can't because mm-hmm. eye contact is so uh, vulnerable. Yes. And the, the amount of times the Lord has had to say to me, Stacey, look at me. And I've never seen anger or frustration in his eyes. Wow. It's only ever like, I'm just so proud of you that you're even having the conversation. And yeah, you didn't have it exactly right. Mm-hmm. But you're starting to get what's on my heart. And as your dad, I'm so excited about that. And as your bridegroom... I'm so excited about that. 
So, so much more we could talk about. We're actually going to come back in the next episode and continue talking about Davidic worship. Do you want to say anything before we close? I think that, yeah, um, he takes us from glory to glory, right? And so I think that it, it might seem like we're circling around the same things. And I think it's it's uh, simply because growing up, uh, the, the the way that I learned was called spiral learning, mm. where it's like one layer upon mm-hmm. the other. It's not just linear. Mm. And so we might be circling back to these mm-hmm. um, concepts a lot. Uh, it's because as God reveals more to us, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that connects to that, that connects to yes. that. And I think that's, again, the the grace that God has for us is that he doesn't reveal it all to us in one go because yep. we just wouldn't be able to handle that no. um, at all. And so, yeah, keep uh, my encouragement to everyone listening or watching would be keep pressing into this, mm-hmm. keep coming back to this and allow God to reveal piece by piece mm-hmm. um, the things that he's desiring to unveil before our eyes because yeah. there's been a lot of veils yep. um, that we've put up over mm-hmm. the years. And so I think that he's veil by veil yep. revealing more of his glory. Like an onion, as Shrek would say. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Donkey would say. Um, yeah, so uh, it's going to be great. Just come along for the journey. Yeah. And uh, we're still learning as we go as yep. well. So excited. Spiral learning is a great way to put it. Yep. But I think also it's grace. 100%. Because the church right now would love the new formula, mm-hmm. but he needs to give us the heart first. That's right. So what we're talking about here are foundational heart postures that David had. David's one thing was developed in private before he ever had a tabernacle revelation. So we're developing heart motives and biblical foundations here before we jump to what the specific practicals look like because that's actually the grace God has showed to us. If he had given us a new formula, we would have just done that and not actually been transformed more into his image. So be patient with us. All right, we'll be back real soon. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed every second of it. Make sure to stay connected with Stacey by liking and subscribing.